I invite you then to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Mark's Gospel and chapter 11. The worship fold indicates that we're going to conclude our reading at verse 33, but actually uh, we're going to continue until uh, verse 12 of chapter 12. Perhaps no one could quite believe we're going to read such a long section, so they just, uh, which is uh, completely fine. Uh, as, as you know, in our series of Mark's Gospel, we're doing longer sections uh, to get the big picture and and this is a longer one, and so I'm going to invite you to remain seated as we come to, uh, to God's Word this time. And we're going to read from chapter 11 of Mark's Gospel, verse 1, to verse 12 of chapter 12. And you'll see how it all fits together, I think, and the parable at the end there interprets what uh, has happened beforehand in this drama. So Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Let's hear God's Word. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? 
Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither would I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's word. It is a long section, but to understand how it fits together, what we need to perceive is the drama of it. And to illustrate that, um, let me begin with a quotation from Shakespeare, of course, a, a dramatist. Uh, Shakespeare, uh, one of his plays, has one of his characters say this. There is a tide in the affairs of man which, if taken at the flood, leads on to greatness. But if missed, life's voyage forever remains in the shallows. There, obviously, uh, Shakespeare is using this image of the tide and the flood to indicate that there is an opportunity that comes to us at certain moments in life that we need to seize. Here, there's an opportunity, a dramatic opportunity that has been presented to the people. And the whole thing is bookended around this opportunity. It's bookended around a quotation from the psalm, Uh, 118. Hosanna is from that psalm, and this is the stone the builders rejected is also from that psalm. It's all a fulfillment of God's long promise that he himself will come. The moment has arrived. The tide is in flood. The opportunity is before them. What will they do? In a sense, uh, Mark, as he recounts what Jesus is doing here, is 
preaching to us the following. Jesus is your last chance. And he does it in three ways through this amazing drama that I want to explore uh, with you. First of all, he says, Jesus is your last chance to win, W-I-N, to win. Uh, and this is the, uh, the famous account of the triumphal entry from verses 1 through to uh, verse 11 of, uh, of chapter 11. And we're so familiar with it. If we're a churchgoer, we would have heard that passage read out in certain seasons of the year frequently that it's easy to miss what's going on here dramatically. We need to have the context to understand it. Obviously, Jesus is entering Jerusalem. He's coming as the king to Jerusalem. That's why they sing from Psalm 118 in verse 9. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna is in the highest. What they're saying is this moment has arrived where the king of the kingdom is finally arriving. That Psalm 118 was uh, sung at the, the, uh, the building of uh, Ezra's temple. It was probably first written to celebrate David going into his kingdom. It was sung at every Passover festival. And now, as Mark tells the story, he's having them sing it to indicate that all that is now being fulfilled in Jesus, the king of the kingdom, coming to his city, Jerusalem. We've got to get the context. Remember, in Mark's gospel, all this has been leading up He's this moment. He's been walking towards Jerusalem. He's been going up to Jerusalem. Now he has arrived. The opportunity is before them. The king has come to his city. But not only that, of course, that city, city of Jerusalem, was at the time under foreign occupation. It was a defeated city. It was an occupied city. The king is coming. He has victory to offer. There's an opportunity of course, they misunderstood the kind of uh, victory that he uh, was bringing. They thought of it as a military uh, a, a victory. But, uh, but we misunderstand the kind of victory that Jesus uh, brings too, don't we, in our understanding of the kingdom. We tend to think of winning this triumphal entry. Of course, a triumphal entry in ancient times was, was given after a victory. So certain is Jesus' victory. He has a triumphal entry at the beginning of the battle. Victory is coming, and God's people have a chance to win. And they misunderstood what kind of kingdom he was bringing, but we so often do as well. We think of winning in terms of prosperity or fame or success or most brazenly money. And yet the kingdom of God that was brought to them at that moment the king and his kingdom, the opportunity before them to sue for peace with the king. And of course, one day he will return. Jesus is your last chance to win. famous preacher that is well known to churches like Cottage Church from yesteryear is a man called Charles Spurgeon. He's 
famous for his gift of rhetoric, and certainly he was a great orator. Uh, if you ever need a, a pick, a pick you up spiritually, you need to be lifted. Google a Spurgeon sermon, it will very rarely let you down. He was um, a funny man. There are all sorts of funny jokes that are told about about Spurgeon. One of my favorite ones is when he was on the Sunday school bus one time going out on an outing and uh, the man in front of him uh, lit up a, a uh, pipe with all the children around, a, a, a cigar with all the children around started to smoke and uh, Spurgeon tapped him on the shoulder and said, Mr. So-and-so, aren't you ashamed to smoke on the Sunday school outing? And the man was like, oh, I'm so sorry, uh, Pastor, I put it away. And then a moment later, Charles Spurgeon with great ostentation, got out a cigar himself and began to smoke. The guy turned around and said, what? Hold on, you just told me. And and Spurgeon said, "Uh, you obviously were ashamed. I am not. (laughs) But though Spurgeon is most well known for his gift of oratory, good humor and all the rest, and these are significant parts of his character, what is less well known is his doctrinal bravery. He was immersed in a controversy called the downgrade controversy. He looked around and he saw that there was doctrinal decay in the churches. And at great cost to himself personally, he called out the, what he called, downgrade doctrinally in the church at the time. That the king, King Jesus and his word, was being dethroned from the churches. One of the things he said, of course lots of writings about it that took place and he said a lot of other things and there was a lot of discourse at the time about this downgrade that he called out but one of the things that Spurgeon said was as he observed the churches diminishing in numbers that they should not be surprised if they dethrone the king and his word and then there is no winning here comes the king to Jerusalem It's your last chance to win with the lordship of King Jesus. But then the the drama goes on, and not only is is Jesus our last chance to win, he's also our last chance to witness. And this is a very uh, long section from uh, verse 12 all the way really to verse 33, and of course there's a lot there, but essentially it's... It's fairly easy to grasp. Once again, you get the drama of what Mark is, is telling. But this time, the, the dramatic tools that he uses is less context, though that's always important in interpretation, and more the symbolism of what is being used. So first of all, there's the symbol of the fig tree. Uh, you can see that Jesus, uh, in verse 14, he, uh, he curses the fig tree. And then he goes to the temple cleanses the temple, and then we're back to the fig tree again. And uh, Peter, verse 21, points out the fig tree that Jesus cursed has withered all the way to its roots. This is a symbol, a symbolic act. The fig tree was symbolic of God's people. Jesus didn't uh, curse the fig tree because he was sort of anti-environmental or something. He didn't curse the fig tree just because he was hungry and got angry. The point of his cursing of the fig tree was a symbolic act 
of what he's about to do when he cleanses the temple. There's another uh, symbol here, another symbolic element to the drama, and that is the mountain. Having uh, been uh, told by Peter, look, uh, verse 21, the fig tree you curse is withered, look how Jesus answers. How he answers is by talking about this mountain. That also is a symbol. That whole section there about the mountain and prayer and all that sort of thing is usually employed in Christian circles to uh, sort of... uh, uh, If you have enough prayer, if you have enough faith and your prayer is significant enough or great enough, then you can have mountain-moving prayer. And maybe there are applications that are legitimate along those lines. But obviously here, the point of this is this mountain is symbolic. What is Jesus saying? He stands there... Having just cleansed the temple, what is the mountain? The mountain is the temple mount. What Jesus is saying is there's going to be a great change that takes place now. That old way of the temple has, has, has finished. Now the gospel is going to go to all nations. With those symbols in mind, we can then understand what Jesus says when he goes to the temple. So in the middle, with the symbols around it to help us understand it, we, Jesus obviously goes to the temple, he drives out those who sold in the temple, he overturns the table, the bunny changes and all that. Um, and what does he say? How does he interpret? He's teaching, he says to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. What that does not mean... So Jesus, when he cleanses the temple, is not emphasizing financial fiduciary responsibility in churches, as important as that is. Nor is Jesus emphasizing prayer. Obviously, there was prayer going on the temple. There was prayer going on the temple all the time. The point is not prayer. As significant as prayer is. What does Jesus say? As it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? All nations. You see, God's people had always been meant to be a light to the nations. You remember the the blessing that God gave to Abraham right at the beginning of the story. He was blessed that his blessing through him would go to all the nations. And God's people had always wrestled with that and struggled with that. Read the story of Jonah for one of many examples of how they wrestled with this idea that they were meant to be a light to the nations. And here Jesus is at the, the pinnacle, the, meant to be the greatest burning, shining light to all the nations. And what does he find? Temple changes, uh, money changes in the temple, who are using the necessity of someone who's traveled from a long distance to have the appropriately authorized animal to have to change the money to the right, uh, the right coin to be able to buy that money. They were erecting unbiblical barriers to make it harder for those further away from the temple to join in the worship. They make it harder. Obviously, there's fiduciary um, uh, unfaithfulness going on as well. But the point is they were using it to make it harder for all nations to be involved in the worship of God, to, to, to be involved in the blessing of God. Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. All the nations. That's the point of the temple. That's the point of the house of God. 
uh, in my um, ministry as a pastor, I have rarely been um, absolutely flummoxed. Uh, it's happened maybe a handful of times where, where, where someone has said something to me that has just left me flawed, flabbergasted. Maybe only a handful of times. Of those few times, a handful of times where it's happened, two of those times have been to do with race, ethnicity, nations. Uh, one time, a, a pastor that I knew well described to me how in a church in the Deep South, they had just built a new gym, G-Y-M, a new uh, gym, for, you know, all the fancy stuff that a nice new gym has, and they just, they just built it, and, and some African-American teenagers were starting to use it, they, they discovered there was a nice new gym, and they were using it to play basketball in, and I'm told, apparently, a deacon in the church, having discovered it was being used by African-Americans, went to that gym while they were playing and turned off the lights and said to them, we didn't build this house for people like you. How is that possible? How is it possible that deacon in the house of God does not realize that this house, God's house, is for all nations? I was flummoxed, flabbergasted. How is that possible? Another time, as I said, only a handful of times I've been absolutely floored as a pastor. Two of them about being race. The other time about race was when a young African American um, college student came to me, and uh, he described to me something he had experienced in another church a long way away. And because of this experience, he was a bit gun shy about getting involved in church again. And when I heard it, I wasn't surprised. He described to me how in this other church, in a public venue with lots of other people around, someone had called him by a racial epithet. Let's put it like that. In front of all sorts of other people. Publicly. And he said to me, no one did anything. Those of you who know me will know that I very rarely get angry. Well, I was furious for that man, that young man, that he had experienced that. He looked at me and said, so if that happened here, what would you do? I said to him, if that ever happened to any church I was a pastor of, the person who said that would immediately be put under church discipline, and if they did not repent, they would be excommunicated. God's house is a house of prayer for all nations. And we, we don't need to go for sort of fancy, pagan, secular philosophy to, to, to believe that. Jesus says it. His house is a prayer for all nations. And here God's people, as he comes to Jerusalem, here's your last chance to witness to all nations. But there's one other piece that I think is even uh, more... I told you that the parable interprets the whole thing. In many ways it does. I think it's even more amazing, this parable at the end from 
uh, chapter 12 from verse 1 through to verse 12. Here we've had Jesus is our last chance uh, to, uh, to win with his kingdom, his coming kingdom, to, be, to sue for peace uh, with him, to raise up uh, the King Jesus and his word, our last chance to win, our last chance to witness, house of prayer for all nations. But here is uh, our last chance to worship and of course the parable, normally, because the parable was about a vineyard and all the rest, normally when we look at it, we think of it in terms of agrarian or farming kind of, those are the pictures that come to our mind. You think of a vineyard and tenants in the vineyard, and we think of farming. But, but again, here, in this dr- drama, as Mark tells it, as Jesus led, uh, led through it, there's symbolism at work in this parable. The, the, the vine was obviously a symbol of God's people. But more than that, get this. We know that the temple at Jesus' time, Herod's temple, the temple that Herod built, had over its massive doors, the, the entrance doors, were, were huge doors. And all the way over them, we know, was a massive golden vine. There Jesus is, I think, he's standing before those gates with a massive golden vine behind him. And he tells the parable about the vineyard. Yeah, it's all about worship of the temple, isn't it? That's why he quotes again. Remember Psalm 118, bookends the whole thing. Verse 10, same psalm. Have you not read this scripture? The scripture that the... uh, 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 Those in the triumphal entry had been singing the same passage... A little bit earlier in that Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's talking about the temple. And, uh, of course, David, who was rejected, became king, is symbolic of Jesus, who's rejected, who's the king, as he rises again from the dead. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's our last chance to worship. See, at the heart of worship, look... We have all this stuff, right? You know, microphones and musicians and piano and organ and platform and a pulpit. And all this is fine. But at the heart of worship is the issue of ownership. They are tenants in the vineyard. Not owners. I, I, um, I first really began to get my mind around this when I was at high school. Um, our high school was founded on nominally Christian grounds, and it had a, a basis, and it had a chapel. And then after you went to chapel, you walked through a gate, uh, it's called Stevenson's Gate, uh, onto your classes. And above the gate, there was a quotation from actually a, um, an atheist, um, uh, ancient probably atheist, pagan, atheistic at least, a man called Lucretius from something he wrote called the nature of, about the nature of things. And there's a quotation uh, from this atheist that re- we had to learn by heart when I was there anyway. We had to memorize it. And it really reverberated around in my mind for a long time trying to understand what he was saying. And often you get insights from all sorts of different people. Um, and Lucretius 
uh, the quotation in Latin is Viteque mancipio nullidata omnibus usu, which means life is given to no one to keep. For all, it is on loan. Amazing, an atheist, even atheists realize life's short and it's not really ours. How much more should we Christians? We, our language betrays us, doesn't it, sometimes? I suppose there's no, there's nothing wrong with, if someone says, which church do you go to? And you say, well, my church is uh, that church. What you mean is that's the church you go to, but our language does betray us, doesn't it? There are, there are hidden depths to the way we describe things. My church. No. God's church. My car. My house. My money. My life. None of which is true. You are merely a tenant. That's it. And if you are to really experience true worship, you need to acknowledge, more than acknowledge, believe, accept His ownership. It's the heart of worship. A well-known preacher uh, of a previous generation called Eric Alexander, Scottish preacher. He actually just died last week, so he was on my mind. I never heard him preach, but he's a man I respect. And uh, Eric Alexander, among other things, was known for one particular phrase that he would sometimes use. He he looked out at his congregation and uh, would say, I'm all for consumer worship. You can imagine the sort of slight shocked pause. I'm all for consumer worship as long as we understand who the consumer is. He's the master. He's the Lord. He sent always different prophets, as the, these are, of course, the messengers that they send to the vineyard. And then the Son, S O N, is, of course, Jesus himself, who they will kill because they won't accept his ownership. But he'll win anyway. But it is their last chance to win, to witness, and to worship. Seizing opportunities is... There are different ways to underline the momentous aspect of the opportunity before us this morning. One common way, of course, is to talk about the unpredictability of life. It's an important way of underlining the opportunity that we all have this morning. Every, pretty much every week at College Church, there's a funeral. Funeral. 
People die all the time. This could be your last chance. Another way, of course, to underline the opportunity before us is, is more theological and less um, experiential. Uh, the, 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 the theologically, when the Gospels tell the story of Jesus coming to Jerusalem as the king, the, the theologically, of course, there's another coming that is still to happen. And theologically, he can return at any moment. This is your last chance. But there's one other way of underlining the momentous nature of this opportunity before us that is less frequently used, but is very powerful. Uh, it's employed by C.S. Lewis in his, um, I suppose, autobiography, or at least a description of his own conversion called Surprised by Joy. And as he uh, tells the story of how he became a Christian, he very famously at one point says that he was uh, the most unlikely convert in all of Christendom. It's a wonderful, wonderful phrase. I mean, he's finally converted. But in that in that story, there's another part which is less well known, where he describes what it was like when the opportunity to follow King Jesus was presented to him spiritually. It felt to him, he said, like while on the one hand God was sovereign and would do what he has determined to do. On the other hand, he felt like the offer before him was the freest choice he had ever been presented with. Jesus is your last chance. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, there's so much in this story and in this theme. We do pray as a church our worship would be centered on you as our owner. We pray as a church, Lord, that we will witness to all nations. We pray most of all, Lord, that we would bow before you, King Jesus, and therefore win relationally and eternally. We pray, Lord, that we would not miss this opportunity. That with your Spirit stirring our conscience, uh, we would bow before you as our King. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.